is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Our March 22, 2019, archaeologist Dr. Allison Mickle from Lehigh University met a panel of Siam students and faculty to discuss archaeological knowledge production in regards to the potential of narrative fiction in archaeological writing and also social network analysis. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siam. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Radio Siams. My name is Adam Smith. I'm the Goldman Smith Professor of Anthropology here at Cornell and also Director of Graduate Studies for Siams. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest for this Radio Siams episode. Allison Mickle is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Lehigh University. Dr. Mickle specializes in the study of archaeological knowledge production, including the disciplines practices of fieldwork, our genres of representation, and the processes of heritage construction. Her ethnographic studies are focused in the Middle East, most notably at the site of Chichal Hayuk in central Turkey, and more recently at Umm al-Jamal and Petra in Jordan. Our touchstones for today's conversation are two of her recent publications. The first, entitled The Novelty of Responsible Archaeological Site Reporting, How Writing Fictive Narrative Contributes to Ethical Archaeological Practice, appeared in a 2012 issue of Public Archaeology. The second is a 2016 article from the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory entitled Tracing Teen Texts and Topics, Applying Social Network Analysis to Understand Archaeological Knowledge Production at Chital Hayuk. Our discussion today will thus consider a range of issues that surround the practice of archaeology and our implication in various forms of public engagement. Around the table with us today in Cornell's Landscapes and Objects Laboratory are three students who are members of SIAMS and who will be leading the discussion. They will introduce themselves in turn as we go around the table. But I want to start things off by asking Allison to do something that I never really ask our Radio Siams guests to do, and that is to read a selection from one of the articles we are engaging with today. Uh, in particular, I was really drawn in, Allison, to your argument about the potential of narrative fiction in archaeological writing. So I wonder if first I might welcome you and then ask you for our listeners to read the opening epigraph from your 2012 article, which comes from your excavation notebook and then your revised experimental rewriting of the passage as narrative fiction. And thank you for being here with us today. Absolutely. I'm really happy to be here. I'm really happy to be part of a podcast as a podcast love myself. <laughs> so the, my, my article starts with an excerpt from um, our actual uh, excavation report from um, when I was part of an excavation in Jordan. It says, this report summarizes the 2010 excavation season at Area B of the Birmithgore Project. Area B comprises the entirety of a potential bath and caravanserai complex about 50 meters southeast of the late Roman fort at Birmith Gore. We excavated four 5.0 meters by 5.0 meter trenches, B.04, B.05, B.06, and B.07. In what follows, I present the evidence for what appears to have happened at this site over time, beginning in the early to late Roman period and continuing until the late Roman period, using locus summaries for each trench. I conclude by suggesting opportunities for future research in the area. That sounds like a paragraph that most all of us have written at some point. In our lives, <laughs> yeah. So I'd love for, to invite you to, to uh, read the revised one that brings it into the realm of what you call narrative fiction. Absolutely. Something shattered sparkled in the sand. Patinated fragments winked at the sun, that blazing orb that scorched trees, boulders, animal bones, but glimmered upon the minuscule shards of glass cached beneath layers of tumbled Roman walls. 
For these millimeter-thin pieces of glass, we used paintbrushes to raise them from the sandy soil surrounding them. We learned the Arabic name, Gizaz. Nothing we had found until this point had warranted a bilingual moniker. These shards, though, drew in and refracted as many names as possible. Whatever object they had once been part of had been crushed so that every edge of every smithereen offered an infinitum of possibilities as to how these pieces had once been unified. The more pulverized the once whole object, the more the archaeological heartbeat quickened, the more a uniquely archaeological creativity was required to reconstruct from these endless glinting granules of 4th century glass, a perfume vessel perhaps, of a lady living at this early Roman fort. Thanks so much. I, I, I absolutely love this, uh, the writerly aesthetics of this piece. Uh, and in addition to making me wish that all archaeologists wrote as beautifully uh, as that, uh, it made me curious about how you framed the question of uh, uh, narrative fiction, not only as one of writerly aesthetics, which are so striking in that con uh, contrast, but also about ethics. So I wonder if I could get you to say a little bit more about what the ethical obligations entailed in this form of writing are. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I appreciate the comment about wishing the archaeologists were better writers. It was a comment that I got when I was writing this over and over again. I got, you know, it's a, it's a great idea, but we're, we're not good writers. <laughs> um, and, you know, I guess, I guess fair enough, but, um, but to me, the reason why I frame it as an ethical argument is because you, you got to try, right? Like, um, and we just, we make cases to undergraduates throughout their entire academic career that becoming a good writer is like, is so important. And suddenly the pushback that I get is, but we're not good writers, but you just said it was important. So, um, so to me, the ethical dimensions of it come out. Um, there's kind of two ways in which I'm, I'm framing that, that argument. One is, is our responsibility towards the public, which is I think more of what I emphasize in this article that in writing, uh, in the way that I started with, um, there's, a lot, there's a gatekeeping happening with that. Um, not everyone can engage with that kind of language. Um, even I, the B.04, B.05, like I was there and I barely really remember what those were referring to. Um, and so if you're not there, it just it becomes really hard to, to pay attention to and to uh, keep in your head. And, um, and so I think we're like we're pushing away potential interlocutors and, and signaling to them that we don't want them to engage when we when we write in that way. Whether or not that's the intention, I think that's the that's what's being read from from that kind of writing. Um, the other ethical dimension of it, um, which I think I, I discuss a little bit, but uh, comes out a little bit more in the full length version of uh, my writing on this, um, is that. Site reports do a really nice job of smoothing over the difficulties of excavation, and um, specifically on this project, um, just like on any project, we had first-time excavators, some of whom were extremely bad at excavating. <laughs> I mean, there's just no other way of putting it. Like, they just, they, they messed up a lot. Um, and so with archaeology, since we can never repeat our experiment, um, if they dug through a floor, for example, they dug through a floor, like, that's what happened. But there's all this reframing that happens in the site report where um, it's framed as a probe. Uh, through the, we put sent a probe through the floor. Like, no, that person just didn't know what a floor looked like. And they were like, this is unusually hard to dig through. I guess I'll try harder. Um, <laughs> So I, I uh, so I think that writing fictive narrative allows us to talk about mistakes and talk about like the the accidents that happen in the course of research. Um, there's a really popular Twitter account, it's overly honest methods in science, and it talks about how like research questions are um, 
are the way they are because of funding opportunities and how like they dropped the beaker on the floor and that's how they learned that this was an explosive material, you know, <laughs> things like that. And we, I just don't think we do that enough in archaeology. And to me, fictive narrative allows for more opportunity to explain the, the, the real narrative of what, what happened in the project. Like, why, did, why were certain decisions made? What led to uh, maybe something that wasn't part of the original research design, what, what led to that happening, um, and not having to be so, like, stodgy around, like, you know, calling it something that's scientifically legible, like, like a probe. You know, mistakes happen, and sometimes they're happy accidents, and sometimes they're not, and I just, um, I think it's a disservice to the field that we pave so smoothly over how, how frequently that happens. Uh, hi, I'm Kathleen Garland. I'm in the Classics Department, and uh, in my fourth year, and I work on uh, archaeological labor. So I guess, you know, I, I'm interested, uh, you know, I think the, the public-oriented um, thinking in this is really important, but I'm also interested in how this can actually be used um, sort of among our peers to facilitate, I don't know, maybe a little more honesty. Um, and I don't know, I, I find that storytelling is immediately more graspable and um, you know, works with memory in a way that just you know, reading a table doesn't, right? Um, at the same time, I think there are some real barriers to people who want to use this approach. So, you know, um, funding bodies that require certain formats of applications and so forth. So how, you know, what are some practical ways that we can actually try to make inroads um, in this way? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. I think you mentioned funding bodies. Tenure is another thing that, um, you know, if we, if we write only this, um, some departments may not really accept that. It's, there's def this, our, our field is definitely not set up to reward and, um, uh, like, generate more of this kind of writing. Um, and it's a, it's a real, that's a real critique that I want to honor. I, I don't want to sort of flow past it. Um, but to me, I think there's room for, for doing this alongside the, the sort of normal writing we do. Um, and it's worth noting that, that this, is, this is happening anyway in our fields. Um, there's kind of that oft-repeated like, adage in academia that at conferences, the real archaeology, the real anthropology, the real work is not happening in the sessions where we're talking much more like the former example, um, but actually it's happening in the bars and the pubs where we're maybe not talking this like elevated, like, you know, and shattered sparkled, like not like that, but yeah, 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 like we're not, it's not like slam poetry session, you know, we're not, we're not um, necessarily artistic, but we are doing a lot of like really honest and relatable storytelling in those moments. And we do it with our family members, you know, I, I can't count the number of times somebody is, has asked like, what's the coolest thing you found? Um, or like, oh, so you're like Indiana Jones. And I share a story that shows like, how I am or I'm not like that. And so we're doing this all the time um, anyway. And to me, you know, we're giving away for, for free. So like, why don't we do more of this? Um, and I'm not the only one saying this. There are like edited volumes of people who are experimenting with this. I think the, the trick is, and what I was trying to do in this article is, is to frame it not as just kind of um, like giving into the fun of creative writing, but actually something that is knowledge producing, that is generative, and that's something something that we should be doing as a core part of of our fields, um, rather than uh, you have a lot of archaeologists who write fiction in their sort of spare time. Um, the gears are, are kind of well known historical archaeologists who do this, um, and so you have you have some some examples of people who are, are 
toying with this as like a as like a side project. Um, but I'm really advocating for like codifying what we're what we're doing anyway, um, and recognizing it as actual disciplinary knowledge that um, the theme in my work that gets lost unless we put it down in writing and, and share it in official ways. Um, I'm Alex. I'm a master's student in the archaeology program, and um, I have some of your like, your quotes like I wanted to touch up on. So basically, how you were saying how. Um, like this way, like the status quo of writing, um, they emphasize it being as like a flawless procedure when in reality it's not. Um, and how you mentioned that it's it can be like unethical. Um, my question along with that is, well, so I, I agree with your writing. Like I think that's actually really cool. Um, I really enjoyed reading um, how you described the things. Um, why do you think uh, throughout the years people still write? in this certain way and like if there's like any benefits of it because mm-hmm. um, it's so much different from the way that you're um, doing it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. if there's like benefits of both yeah so the they can language. be fused together yes mm-hmm. absolutely 100 mm-hmm. I mean the reason why people are writing this way because um I, I'm, I do, like, history of archaeology. That's, like, my bread and butter. Um, and if you look at the history of archaeology, people wrote this way originally. Like, this is, what archaeology, this is how archaeology started, was writing, like, letters and stories um, and writing these, like, really um, immersive and evocative uh, stories of the excavation process, traveling through exciting lands and people you met and the things you found. Um, and they, they were really... It was, it, was, it was an engaging way of writing um, that got lost during like the scientization of, of, of archaeology, um, which I'm not in opposed yeah. to. Like I think sci- like natural science and um, thinking about the scientific method as what is structuring our knowledge production procedure. Like I, I'm, I'm here for that. That's, that's great. Um, and obviously it's, it's pushed our field further than sort of um, just putting pots in order and like calling them special names. Like, you know, we, we've, we've gotten further because of the introduction of scientific methodology uh, into our field. And that's where this language comes from. It's like mimicking the lab report um, sort of language. Um, and I don't think we should do, do away with it. Like, I think it definitely is something to offer the field. Um, in particular, one thing that's been pointed out to me a few times when I've shared this work is that archaeology is often used, um, like we're, we're sometimes ep- expert witnesses or expert voices in trials, um, especially for land claims for native communities. Um, we have there are forensic archaeologists who testify in um, cases surrounding violence and crime, um, and and having that scientific voice is important for maintaining that authority in those spaces. And so I'm not saying that we should like abandon that and. Um, you know, shift completely to like memes or something, like writing <laughs> only in memes. The ultimate engagement. Um, Snapchat archaeology. That's not, it is not, I'm not like, you know, suggesting we throw away all the things that have made archaeology what it is. They go together um, for sure. But I don't, I also don't think that natural science um, is so committed to the, to exclusively writing in this way either. I think like, um, when we look at like what what the AAAS is is um, emphasizing these days, and the amount of um, like workshops that are out there for public engagement in natural science, like they're having these conversations too mm-hmm. around whether they're communicating science effectively. Um, it's you know no accident that we have 
movements like flat earth and anti-vaccination and, and these sorts of anti-science movements happening. Um, I think it's related to science's inability to engage a variety of audiences. Um, and so, so yeah, we, I wish to be having those conversations just like they are, e even if we took this rhetorical form, this genre, um, from that field, we should also be recognizing that they're they're critiquing it too. They're not, you know, holding fast to it. Neither should we. I'm Alice. I'm a first year in the medieval studies program, and I'm an archaeologist, which is actually sort of leading into my question because I really liked your article, and especially because it made me think about how I read site reports. Mm -hmm. And I realized that a lot of the time when I'm reading them, I'm sort of just going through to try to extract the data that I need. Yeah. Um, and rewriting them in this way actually makes you sort of take into account aspects that might be relevant to you that I might miss otherwise. <laughs> but then my follow-up from that was, so as an archaeobotanist, when I write site reports for archaeobotany, a lot of the time it feels like we're sort of in the worst of both worlds because we need to be super, super scientific. Um, and then no one reads what we write. And I can't even understand archaeobotany reports. <laughs> um, and then I talk to my friends and I'm like, oh, I understand what you're saying. I just can't understand what you wrote. Mm -hmm, right, so right. how do you how do you see um, sort of following on from Alex's question that sort of integration of narrative approaches with the need to present quantitative data in a way that can be easily extracted? Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a great question. Um, I I think again, turning to what's happened, what 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 exists in natural science makes a lot of sense. Um, maybe you can tell me if this is if there's a conversation around this in archaeobotany, but um, other fields, like it, it it's it goes in your tenure file. You get credit for publishing just raw data sets, and you don't have to do the like writing to couch it. Like it doesn't have to be a journal article. You can submit data sets to different um, platforms and spaces. Um, they're essentially peer-reviewed, like you submit your methodology, and so people like look them over. But you get credit for your for your raw quantitative data. I know um, zooarchaeology has been having a conversation around that. Is that happening in archaeobotany at all? Not that I've heard. Okay. To me, that's the solution. If you're already reading the site report to pull out the quantitative data, like mm -hmm. why hide it? Like we don't need to make it this game, you know? Like we don't need to put a lock on the cookie jar. Just um, you know, make it available. So I, there's there are obviously emerging models for. Um, open data and big data in archaeology, I think that's a really hard thing to achieve when different excavation styles um, diverge so much in different parts of the world, and depending on your research questions, depending on the, the period of the site you're looking at. I think it's um, an ambitious goal to imagine that we could bring all of our data together. But when we're talking about specific subfields like archaeobotany or like zooarchaeology, um, to me, that's, that's, that's one way to go, is to like separate out uh, the quantitative data presentation from like the narrative narrative writing yeah. you still be doing. <laughs> yeah. This is Adam again. Um, I want to try and thread the needle between your two articles yeah. that we read because it strikes me that one of the questions that emerges from the narrative fiction issue is why don't we do this anymore? Because there mm -hmm. was a time when archaeologists were very committed to forms of popular writing aesthetics, and I think of the kind of writerly work that Child did mm -hmm. in a series of things that came out in best-selling Penguin paperbacks, for example, <clears throat> which in some ways I think have the qualities of uh, discovery, of sometimes breathless exposition that uh, bring in the sense of wonderment that uh, and enchantment with archaeology that have somewhat been lost and that I think run the difference between 
your first version of your field report and the second version. And so, and it throws me onto the sociology of the research process to a certain extent and wondering, well, is the reason why we don't write this way part of a epistemological difference where commitments to science transformed us into kind of dispassionate reportage uh, rather than, wow, this is still really cool. Uh, or is it somehow about the sociological organizational project where, say, paleobotanists are producing one form of data, zooarchaeologists another form of data? And where do you see the kind of causal lines that are pushing us, that have pushed us historically away from these forms of representation? Yeah, yeah. It's a, I think the answer is really complex. It's sort of a yes is the, right. is the answer right. um, as far as I see it. I do think one um, thing that plagues archaeology Still, is that um, even though we know that we've really leaned into science as a core um, epistemological or like organizational system that we that we align with, um, and we use a lot of really complex and advanced scientific methodologies, um, I think we have a lot of anxiety around other people recognizing that and other people seeing that, um, and that there's this sense that. Um, that archaeology doesn't want to be seen. I think we resist to being being put in any box too too fully. Um, we don't we don't want to be seen as exclusively a science because we're proud. I think of the fact that we study people in the past and that we do storytelling and use imagination. Um, but I think people know that, and so archaeologists are more often pushing against the perception that we are like just making stuff up and. Um, I don't know, I can't count the number of people who, when I tell them I'm an archaeologist, they're like, oh, you know, I, I wish I could have done that. But they have no reason why they didn't. They just think that it's like this out of reach goal. Like, and that like, I don't know what they think allowed me to choose this career path. I'm pretty certain they're wrong because I just majored in it and like <laughs> continued studying it. Um, but I think they think of it as like this mythical, like fantasy career world. Um, and, so, and I think archaeologists have a lot of anxiety about that. And I think our commitment to... Um, scientific data and and speaking in this very academic performative kind of way um, is a, is a lot of laying, continuing to lay claim to scientific discourse and to being seen as a science as a science um, which is necessary to you know get funding and to be seen as legitimate. We're living in an era when uh, this is a little outdated now, but. We have congressmen calling on their constituents to go through the NSF website and send them examples of projects that should be defunded. So they'll, they'll fight to defund those projects. It's a real that's a real thing that happens. Um, and so archaeology, I think, um, you know, is, is seen as like a luxury science. It's not we're not curing cancer. We're not um, we, we may we may not always be seen as the most relevant or most pressing discipline. And so if we continue if I think there's this hope that if we keep writing in this way, like maybe someday someone will like really accept us as as the science that we are. Um, but I just think that's misguided. I think that that's not the way forward. Well, there's certainly a kind of irony where I say uh, cancer research doctors don't have two or three television channels dedicated to their research, right. even though obviously they're like curing cancer, which is really <laughs> right, fine. Right, right. Delighted that they're doing it. But with Discovery Channel and National Geographic and all of these other kinds of channels, these are really archaeologically focused. So we have a, a purchase on the popular imagination mm -hmm. that we're, I think you're right, we're not embracing. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And I, I, to come to your social network an article, I thought that there was an insight there that I really wanted to bring forward because it tallied well with my experience uh, uh, over the last two decades or so. And that was the point about the surprising marginality of the dig director mm. to knowledge production, production of certain kinds uh, within the project study at Chital Hyuk. Uh, and this tapped into a deep anxiety of my own, which is I've been running a project in Armenia for a couple of decades. And what I noticed was is it started as basically me and my Armenian co-director in the field together. And then we layered on a new group of people who created vastly improved opportunities to say interesting things. And then we added a group of specialists who were amazing and terrific and also made it possible to say myriad new things. But with each new layer that we added on, I became far more distanced from the empirical substrate materials. And so the capacity to say more things made, ironically, us capable of saying it in a less interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So work me through my anxieties, I think is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I, I, I will say that an earlier draft of this uh, paper, before we had done the topic modeling, just, it just remarked on how peripheral Ian Hodder was to the overall Chatelhuk hierarchy. He's, he's the dig director there. Um, and uh, when I, when I like, added on the part about topic modeling where you can see, what we were able to show is that when he, co when he coined ways of talking about archaeology or he starts using them, they move through the, through the team pretty rapidly, um, which you can kind of animate and visualize. Um, and so when I, when I showed him the new updated version, he wrote me back an email that said, thank you for rescuing me. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, don't, I can't help you with your anxiety. But, uh, Fair enough. But I, but I will say that I think um, that, you know, I, I think archaeologists want to believe that um, uh, that we're a really like team oriented discipline. Um, and if we're if we're really working in an egalitarian way in like a really team-based way um the dig director sort of shouldn't be at the center that shouldn't be happening that like they're the ones driving the ways that we're talking about archaeology so maybe that helps that it's that it's so decentering yourself yes. for the betterment of the field as a whole <laughs> Self -sacrifice <laughs> Self -sacrifice, yeah falling on your sword yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um kathleen again here um so Moving on to the, the social network analysis um, paper, I'm always sort of a little wary when I see SNA used in archaeological work, um, mostly because of this uh, black box conundrum. Even when it's open source software, like I don't pretend to have any idea how it really works, and I sort of suspect that many archaeologists who talk about it also don't really know how it works. Um, and so it seems you know, to be almost in tension with the, the first article we read, because that's really about accessibility and opening up the, the black box of, you know, archaeology at the trial's edge, right? So um, I guess what I liked about um, the second article was that, you know, as we go through it, we see all the decisions that get made um, by you and um, you know, the team that you worked with here in terms of like what inputs are you, you know, what categories are you creating, and also you know, how are you interpreting the output? And you end up having to sort of rely on all this external empirical knowledge that you've gained from you know, very close association with these people in this project. So I guess the question is, you know, what does it does it just visualize something that could be sort of garnered in other ways, or does it actually point to sort of new insights or add new explanations? So I'm thinking, you know, is it is it that surprising that 
Ian Hodder turns out to be very influential in his writings, but he, as you know, the stake director, he's not micromanaging every project and so on. So, yeah, I, I um, it, yeah, the the way that you framed it, I think, um, helps me to better understand why I wrote the piece the way I did because um, I came to SNA not as an expert in it. I didn't initially run these visualizations or statistics myself. Um, I mentioned at the talk yesterday that. Uh, we had like a specialist who like who did that work for us, um, uh, and so I came in not, not know not understanding those things you're talking about. It was very black boxy to me too, um, and so I think I wrote it partly step by step because of that. Um, I also mentioned the talk that he went to a job at Netflix um, <laughs> during the writing of this piece, and so I had to re and he. Uh, I, I, I had to recreate the entire like process. So I think part of the writing was also like me working through like, and now what do you do, <laughs> Nicole? Like, <laughs> get on it. Um, so sort of thinking through it. Um, yeah, I, so um, I don't know. So I, 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 th I think that that critique is really um, really fair about, about network analysis in general, that, that it does end up really black box, really, yeah, very black boxed in general. Um, I the all the data that I used for this piece is available online. That was something that the journal asked me to do um, because I think that that's really essential. And then in terms of whether we're coming to new conclusions or not using this, um, I will say that when we were putting together the the networks, I did have the experience over and over again that we would meet like every few weeks, and um, the person who was doing the, the the network analysis kind of for us would like very proudly project these images of of you know, the new networks you'd produce, we'd be like, yeah, yeah, the final team talks to each other a lot, like, <laughs> spend six hours a day, you know, like, in this very small room together, like, mm -hmm. um, and we felt like it was really confirming a lot of what we expected, and so I think I started this feeling really skeptical of its ability to show us anything new, it just felt really tautological and, like, self-confirming, um, and, and then over time, I think I came around to the fact that, um, used with other with other technologies like the topic modeling um, and and certain statistical um, strategies, you are able to see um, I don't know facets of the team that you wouldn't see another way. Um, in particular, the sense of local brokerage is really hard to determine. So of course, yes, it's not super surprising that that um, Ian's that his his language has like influence over the team. Um, what was more surprising to me, and I don't think I wrote about this <laughs> in this paper, um, is that when we ran centrality measures on this network, um, I came up with someone who was extremely high. I was pretty proud of it. <laughs> um, I had a lot of power. And it came from the fact that I joined the team when I was an undergraduate. And so I was affiliated with like one aspect of the excavation. And then I started running the field school when I became a graduate student. So I was involved with like the student dimension. And then um, I supervised some undergrads from, from Cardiff. So I was involved in the Cardiff team. And then I worked in the new area that the Polish team opened. So then I was linked to all the Polish people. And other people just didn't move around the site as much as I did. Um, and I never would have thought that I was somebody with any amount of power. <laughs> so, um, so maybe the real power of social network analysis is feeding your own ego. I think <laughs> that's the real, the real asset of it. I don't think I bumped that enough in the article. <laughs> follow-up piece. <laughs> I'm Alex again. And so I really appreciated this article along with the other one because the way that you look at the production of knowledge is very different from other articles that I've read, and I really appreciate it because you emphasize the complexities of creating the knowledge with uh, relations with other people. Um, 
And so for the analysis, how you mentioned, I looked at formal relationships, such as co-authorship and team membership, mm -hmm. and you didn't look at the informal relationships. I was wondering if there's any way to really look at that at all, or if that would just be way too complex, because like, they're probably not as structured, and it would be like happening like outside of, um, you know, like the site or like the written sources. I'm so glad you asked that question, because mm. it's my favorite part of the process, was the day when... I think it was Ian said exactly that. He was like, these are really codified ways of, of looking at like the social organization of the site. So of course it's telling us what we already know because like these are the team lists that we prepared based on like how we thought people were working together. So it's just mapping what we already think. I wonder if there's a way to map the social dynamics of the site. I was like, I, you know, I don't really think so. Like we'd have to, like I guess we could look at like the room charts because um, there's like, you sleep in like very... Uh, tight quarters at Chateau. Mm -hmm. There's there's rooms with, um, I think, four bunk beds, so eight people to a room. Um, then there's the tent people, and the tent people always sleep in the same spot every year, so you could, like, map out this, the tent dynamics. I was like, but, you know, I don't think we have those records going back, and it, was, it would be really, like, subjective. And Ian says, well, we do have the beer list, which is every week <laughs> we have our Thursday night party, the costume party, and... Uh, you you tally like they buy all the beer in mass. We have two massive coolers, and you tally off when you're taking a beer. And um, so we thought through it, and we we're like, well, there's a way in which we could like organize um, the beer list, and we could look at the people who are drinking a lot of beer, and like that would be one group, and like the people who are drinking not a lot of beer, and the people who, like never appear on the beer list. Um, and a few people were really into that idea on our team. Like they were like, that's the that's the way to go. Like we're gonna get at, at social dynamics. Um, and I was the one who was like. I don't think I don't think we can do that. Like I don't think as um, somebody who cares about ethics, I'm like worried about the implications of showing that the grad students are constantly drinking. <laughs> that article going out um, while my colleagues are on the job market feels not great to me. Um, and I think for people who were more distanced from like what the implications of publishing something like that would look like, it seems like a sexier idea than um, to me, someone who isn't super excited about publicizing my own alcohol consumption. It's not <laughs> I went out there. So that, that was our idea for how to map that. I think there are ways of mapping it. And I think there are possible ethical ways of mapping it too. I mean, traditional social network analysis, you're talking to people and figuring out who they think they're friends with. So you could do a study like this and if you were like intentionally collecting that data. Um, but just like any anthropology project, you can't like, like without an IRB to start publishing data that people didn't know that was being like collected and saved. So I don't know why those beer lists are saved anyway. <laughs> what blackmail they're planning. You. <laughs> and you have to presume though also that the rooms assignments mm -hmm. I mean are more fluid. That those may be right. assignments but they don't right. actually have, but that's also another IRB kind of question. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, right. And yeah, people aren't really choosing the room assignments either, so that was an imperfect measure. It's like that's from the top down. It's based on their perception of who's friends with each other, but um, but people changed rooms because they weren't always right about that, like, you know, and whatever. Anyway, so it, we didn't have a way of doing it in this case because we hadn't collected that data intentionally over 25 years, and we didn't really have a way of going back and doing it. But, um, but I think that that would be a way of pushing this further and of getting at how information is shared um, socially and informally um, rather than through like strict co-authorship yeah yeah um so this is alice again so one of the things i really liked about the social network um analysis 
was thinking about how about a month ago we had a lecture by Anna Shalane um, from Sweden, and she was looking at talking about social network analysis as applied to knowledge distribution. Mm -hmm. So after papers come out, um, how tracking how that knowledge spreads in the media yeah. through press releases, and it sort of made me wonder if there's a way to bridge that, jump that gap, I guess, of mm -hmm. the knowledge production um, and seeing how things end up in an article mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and who contributes what pieces, especially with those giant multi-authored climate studies, for example, is right. what I'm thinking about, where I've had so many discussions where we're talking about this paper and someone finally asks, well, who did what part? And we're just like, I, someone asked me, like, what does the list of authorship mean? And I was just like, I don't know. <laughs> it means that they all did something, but I can't tell you which of these 26 people did which part of yeah. the three-page article. Yeah. I, so I think there are models for network analysis looking at knowledge distribution. Um, the example that you mentioned is, is one. There's also a lot of um, citation analyses, citing who. That's a pretty well-established use of, of network analysis. Um, there's going to be an Oxford handbook of network analysis coming out in the near future, um, and I, I contribute to the piece that's that's about that application of network analysis. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think that there's like there's there's ways of doing that. The question of who does what in um, in the knowledge production and then the authorship, um, I I don't know. It's also not a convention that really um, is used a lot in the kinds of archaeology that I do as much. So I'm not as familiar with it, but I. My sense is that that's by design, having so many authors. Um, I think it's also, it's a borrowing from the natural sciences where like you have undergrads who are doing the pipetting um, and they deserve some sort of credit and it's an expectation that when they graduate they should have like publications on their CV, but um, they're not gonna like sole author a peer reviewed journal article in biology, that's just not the way it works, the same way that it kind of does work in archeology. span So I don't know, why, why, do, why do you think science has this practice of having a million authors? I mean, I don't really know, um, because archaeobotany, generally, things are single-authored. Okay. Um, but I think the papers that I'm thinking about are particularly ones where the authors are not a whole bunch of undergrads, but like experts in their fields, because they're trying to bring together archaeology and history and sometimes literary analysis and climate studies. Um, and that's when you get into the question of, well, if the historical analysis in this paper was maybe a little bit um, sketchy or mm -hmm. we felt like there wasn't enough time given to it. Well, who was doing the historical analysis? And you'll look and maybe there's two different historians and mm -hmm. um, things like that, I guess. It's, it's a question that I've come up a lot with because I'm in a humanities department and then I'll be like, look at this paper. And they're like, why are there so many people right. on this paper? Right. Um, and I've been asked by professors like, well, okay, but who's doing which part of this? And I've just I'm just like, I can't answer that, and I don't know that I can explain how it works. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I don't know if for those authors it matters. If it's a list of experts, um, my guess would be that um, they probably feel like, if, if they really are like well-established experts, that their contributions should be recognizable because like they're, if, even if there's two historians, maybe one historian does a different kind of yeah. research, and so like maybe the stakes are low for asserting like their contributions. Yeah. I don't know, but I also, I also think maybe there's a sense of, of wanting to be seen as really good team workers and, and really effective collaborators, um, which involves laying less claim to your own contributions. Um, there's like a model of interdisciplinary or collaborative work, right, where like I contribute my piece and you contribute your piece, but our pieces remain distinct. And then there's a model that I think we 
ideologically like more, which is where like our ideas just meld together and the sum is greater than the parts. Um, so I, my my feeling is that that kind of work taps into that desire to see um, the academy bringing together diverse people from diverse perspectives and, and putting them all in one place. Um, and so the, that act of figuring out who did what is actually maybe a disservice to the, the intention of yeah. that kind of work. But I don't know if you can say that to somebody who's asking you that question. <laughs> well, and perhaps a misrepresentation of the way knowledge production works. Yeah, because if yeah. somebody infuses an idea into the conversation and disperses it through the network, right. and then when someone takes it up and publishes it, like the issue of authorship versus uh, echoing versus Beth versus yes, yeah. all of these different models, which yeah. are cross-pollination, which is another way of saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, a knowledge to cross-pollination and with thanks for... Uh, helping this super productive conversation. I want to thank Allison for joining us as well. Let's give her a hand. Oh, and that's it for this episode of Radio Science. You've been listening to Radio Science, a podcast at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast, which will be recorded and posted in about a month, will be with Eleanor Casella from the University of Tasmania. Radio Science is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening.